Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. Kevin Kling is part funny guy, part poet and playwright, part wise man. A treasured figure on the national storytelling circuit, his voice inhabits an unusual space where homegrown Minnesota meets Dante and Shakespeare. And his stories are revealing of both life's humor and its ruptures. He was born with one disabled arm, and then a midlife motorcycle accident paralyzed the other. But then again, being so-called able-bodied, Kevin Kling points out, is always only a temporary condition. We take in his wisdom on the losses we're born with and the losses we grow into, and on why we turn these things into stories. The heart is an instrument once broken, never repairs the same. I use the word trauma in my, in, in my work because a loss is a loss, whether it's a, a, a heart, a limb, a promise, a person. It's all loss and it's all trauma and it's all things that are broken that can't be cured. You can't go back, but you can heal it. And that's an important thing to know. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. As this show approaches its 20th year, we are resurfacing some favorite shows that have delighted and shaped us and resonate still. This is one of them. I interviewed Kevin Kling in person in Minnesota, where we both live, in 2012. There's something childlike, mischievous, and endearing in his eyes and his smile that live audiences warm to immediately. And most of Kevin's stories include some reference point from his childhood in Osseo, Minnesota. He describes his family as first generation off the farm, but still deeply imprinted by his grandfather, who, he says, always smelled like tractor grease, even in church. And he remembers his grandmother's kitchen as an artist studio, as he's written, Whatever my grandpa provided as a medium, in a gesture she transformed, teased, poached, or pickled. It seems to me that already at the beginning of your life, when you were a little kid, you totally became enchanted with the raw materials of stories, which are words. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really... Do you remember how that happened or what was that like? You know, and uh, as I look back, I, language in our family, we, we love language. We love to laugh. My family loved to laugh. But more importantly, and, um, you know, this is early to touch on this already, but I have to say my left arm, being born with a disability, um, I think led me to becoming a storyteller because rhetoric is immediately obvious and different for someone with a disability because you're referred to and talked about Mm. in words that no one else is referred to. Mm. Uh, And so when people, I know they would say, um, my arm was withered or crippled or say, uh, oh, you poor thing or what happened. Right. Words they chose, I could tell 
like if they blamed um, my parents or me or God or themselves for my condition, and then with that information, I could get what I needed out of them. <laughs> well, right, and that's you know, the other, like, yeah. I so mean, you used your, your, the disability, you also definitely used it as a kid. Just but as it's you, as a kid would. Yes, I mean, yeah. as a kid, you're looking for your angles, you right, know, and you're right. looking for that all the time. Mm-hmm. But that also did really lead me to the power of rhetoric and the power of words and, and, and down the road to storytelling. Mm-hmm. And stories throughout my life, I was always blessed to be around good storytellers. What did you say? I thought this was a great line. As a teen, I learned... Your night before was only as good as your ability to tell about it. Right. That was, <laughs> yep, that was in college, yeah, with my buddies. Yeah, I mean, you wrote, you've written about words, I mean, you know, in phrases like trafficking in the alphabet, words like dormant gods waiting to unleash their power. Mm. But um, I think the context you just described is, you know, is it shines a different light on that power of words. And you're very theological. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you always were. It's in there now. But um, even as you wrote in one place about being a kid, remember being a kid, we dance with all we have. We wear Superman outfits to the grocery store. <laughs> as children, we are closer in time to the creator. Mm-hmm. Did you have thoughts like that, too, when you were a child? I think so. I think I, I realized who I connected with. And I, I connected with my grandparents and I think we were in the same light. I mean, I was in the dawn and they were in the twilight, but we were in the same light. And because of that, they're heading to the creator and I'm coming from the creator. Mm-hmm. And, and it seemed because of that, we spoke a very similar language. And I wondered, even as I was getting older and as I look back, where that goes, because it does go. We become really entrenched in this world. And then as time goes on and we come to the nearer of the end of our lives, we go back to that point. Right, right. Um, and this time we're headed, now we have the names for it. Before we had the, the visceral feeling of the creator, but now we have the names and we know what to call it. You mean as we move through life, mm-hmm. as we become adults? And I think you're also the first person I've heard about who seems to have a genetic predisposition for getting hit by lightning, which oh, yeah. ha- which does have its dramatic religious overtones as well. Yeah. Yeah, Every everybody. Well, it, I used to tell the story that every male in my family got hit by lightning. But my mom took one through the TV and she, the first thing she, she did. Yeah. And she called me up and said, I knew it wasn't just from your father's side. That's the first thing she said. <laughs> or did, is, it, is it maybe infectious that she got it? I don't know. There is actually a, um, a physiological reason that lightning does look for the easiest path to the earth. Yeah. And so as it's coming down, if you're the easiest path, it will take you. And I think, and even my brother and I in shop class in junior high, they had this test where they put a, a, a wire in and it measured the... Um, your conductivity, your uh, the the amount of moisture in your skin, yeah. and my brother and I are the only two to put the needle in the red, and so we must have a lot of something moisture in us or something. You're a conductor. We somehow, <laughs> yeah. So, so you mentioned your arm, and mm-hmm. um, you also have the unusual um, experience of knowing about, as you said, disability you're born with and disability you acquire later in life, mm-hmm. and the difference between those two experiences and. <laughs> it's always been kind of a tool for you in a way as a mm-hmm. as a child and then as a humorist also, right? I mean, you It is it's a it's a really you're always looking especially as a storyteller a way into finding a point of trust 
with your audience or with who you're with. And having something as obvious as my arm was always a good point of, to start the trust. Uh, some people compare storytelling and stand-up. You know, mm-hmm. what's the difference, we're often asked. And the difference to me is that stand-up is aiming, they, they close the door with a joke. I'm a storyteller, we really open the door mm-hmm. with a joke. It's a, humor is, again, a way to establish a trust. Because when you laugh at the same thing, it, it means you come from the same place. It's a point of recognition. One thing that's also, as a kid, that really paid off was when people see something wrong, uh, different, yeah. uh, they immediately um, have assumptions. And you can either feed into those assumptions or take them away from those assumptions, and the choice is yours. Mm-hmm. I love the way you break up the word disability. Oh, yeah. Especially that, the dis, the dis in disability. Yeah. I, well, it, that's a really um, a, a long topic that starts with dis. Um, mm-hmm. I remember, you know, when you read Dante, when you read, you know, he goes to dis. It's the underworld. I think there's a, 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 a quite a connection between the underworld and having a disability because— that, well, as Dante puts it, dis is, is the underworld. It is the place of shadow and reflection where you round off the rough edges of torment and desire. You know, you go to this world of dis, and it's the prefix for disability, which doesn't mean unability. It means um, able through the world of shadow and reflection. Mm. And so it's, mm. an, it's mm. just another way of doing things. But it's, it is through that way. And it is literally having a foot in two worlds. Right. Um, and especially after my motorcycle accident, well, there was a guy in Minneapolis who saw the accident and he thought I died and he sw- and he went around telling right. all Right. I think the news came out that you had died. I, then, right? Yeah, yeah. And because so of his eyewitness account. He and he believed it so strongly that even when it turned out I hadn't died, he still believed it. And I see him on the bus every once in a while, and he thinks I'm a ghost. And <laughs> really? he looks right through me. Yeah, I'll talk to him, and he'll just stare right through me um, because he thinks I'm sent to haunt Minneapolis. Well, <laughs> he's not entirely wrong. <laughs> I, I kind of still feel like I can't extricate a foot from that world, mm. that I think that he's got a point. Um, there for the rest of my life I will have a foot in another world I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being today I'm with storyteller and humorist Kevin Kling In addition to his plays and comedy routines and poetry, he's published several collections of his stories. The Dog Says How was his first book after that motorcycle accident utterly changed his life. I do want to read that first page. um, The Dog Says How? Dog Says How. I should probably tell people why it's called that. Yeah, why is it called that? Well, because... when I got in my accident, I had to get voice-activated software, which is great because you speak into a microphone and then it writes what you say. But part of the problem is it, 
that's when I found out I had an accent because it's got to learn your nuances. <laughs> you didn't know before? No, I didn't. And, you know, well, it was like when the movie Fargo came out. Remember that? And people from here kept calling the radio station going, hey, what's the deal? We don't sound like that. I'm like, oh, brother. So I, I'm reading into the microphone, um, I think, the Gettysburg Address. And as I'm, because it already knows what I'm saying right. and it can pick up my nuances and then from then on know how to write what I'm saying. Well, my dog and cat got in a fight behind me and the dog's like, roo, 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 and the cat, meow, meow, roo, 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 meow, meow. And the computer started writing, how, 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 why, why, how, how, how. The dog's looking at the cat like, how? And the cat's like, why? You know, why, why are you doing this? So great. That's where the dog says how came from. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you to read some stuff later, but I actually want to read this, and it's very beautiful. It's kind of like the preface, you would say, on a motorbike. I just want to read the first lines. It all started because I wanted to fly. I remember watching the barn swallows on my grandparents' farm, fork-tailed acrobats of the sky darting in and out of rafters, following roads only they could see, living life just ahead of their bodies. God, I wanted to feel that, a foot in two worlds. So I got a motorcycle, which ends with you flying off the motorcycle. And mm-hmm. Yeah, the last line is, and from my body I flew. Right. So it was a different kind of flight than I'd planned. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it seems to me that as you write now, it, it feels like maybe this is true for all of us at various times in our life that something happens and it reframes everything mm-hmm. that comes after but also because you I mean it's a very dramatic happening and also because I think you're somebody who again is always going back and forth in time and connecting dots between childhood stories and the stories of other parts of your life it's it's almost like the accident also reframes the stories you tell about the, the beginnings of your life it's, it really did it's um, when when something like that happens, I mean, part of another thing I try to describe in a poem that I wrote that, that is that when you are born with a loss, um, you grow from it. But when you experience a loss later in life, you grow toward it. That you are now a, have become a person you aren't yet. You're still the old mm. person, and you have to grow into that person that you were. And so for me, going back into childhood and finding out where the pieces that fit with this new person belong um, is, 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 again, part of the journey. I have to go back and reframe my childhood to fit with this new person that I am, not mm-hmm. the person I was. And so that's part of that exploration. So, I mean, what did you see then in your childhood that you hadn't paid as much attention to before? Um, I think mostly human connections. This is when I'm... Part of it is when this accident happened, because I do believe you, you spend the first half of your life running away from home and the second half trying to get back to home. <laughs> and, and when I had my accident, was and a pivotal point was I was still running away from home. And I had my accident. And in this journey back to home, coinciding with this person that, I, that now is searching back through these people, I've started to embrace people I used to run from my parents and my grandparents, understanding them on another level, understanding the choices that they made at times that really either upset me or I didn't understand. Now going back and reliving those times through a point of connection. Mm -hmm. And before that, I was, my stories really involved 
adventure mm-hmm. and travel. That again, that running from. And this has really created a, a different form of retrospect. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it's person-driven. Right. Right. It's true. There are lots of stories about your brother also maybe mm-hmm. and that and even childhood escape where you may be staying in the same place, but you've created universes that mm-hmm. you go to. Yeah, it's a different world now. Mm-hmm. And it seems when you write about that, that it was really a near-death experience in a sense, right? You mm-hmm. felt like you could have gone either way. I w- it did at that point where I can only assume is the point of impact was a, a given a choice to follow a great sense of peace or to return to this plane. And I returned, and one of the struggles that I will always face is why did I return? Why did I choose tension over peace? Mm-hmm. And... Obviously, it was a choice. Um, I remember you had a quote on one of your shows where, where Rabbi Heschel said, when we pray, don't pray to get things, pray to be worthy to get things. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I, that's becoming clearer and clearer as time goes on. Mm. Talk some more about that. Because that's, that's also a theme that I feel like your whole sense of prayer, what it means, what it does, that that has completely shifted. It has. And yeah, the... One of the stories that I tell is about the three phases of prayer. The first being pray to get things. I pray, you know, as a kid, um, especially uh, there was a squirrel monkey in the back of Spider-Man comics. It was for (laughs) $9.99. And I wanted that squirrel monkey so bad. So I remember around Christmas time, I'd pray to God to ask Jesus to tell Santa to get me that monkey, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And then it shifted uh, to prayers in college to get me out of things and you know <laughs> yeah. save me yeah. you know I'm in, I'm in over my head here mm-hmm. uh, and, the, and the story I linked to that is when I was uh, on the island of Eos in the Mediterranean and I wanted to get back to Athens but I reached in my pocket and I only had $20 and I still wanted to see Italy and Ireland so I stowed away on a boat and the guy next to me a French guy said they haven't even come around for tickets and when they find you they're going to take you below he said this happened to a buddy of mine they'll beat you with socks full of soap because it won't show bruises and I said well I'm an American no they won't oh I go, they're going to love you he said <laughs> so uh, when they came up I hid I hid behind these barrel depth charge things and they saw my shoes and I climbed over a ladder and I'm hanging over the water and I prayed I bet I hadn't prayed in 10 years and I prayed Get me out of here, you know, please, God, I won't ever do anything this stupid. Uh, and and then the third phase of prayer, I was uh, in rehab in the hospital. And while I was in rehab, uh, 9-11 happened. And, really? Yeah. And I watched it on TV and I didn't think it was, I thought it was like another TV show. And I saw 9-11. And then after that, I had post-traumatic stress and I was in sync with the country. We all were going through post-traumatic stress at right. the same time. It was like <laughs> going from denial to anger to vengeance. Mm-hmm. And I had to take an elevator down to the bottom floor every day and uh, try to walk a half a block. That was like my job. And I'd walk my half a block, and that's when Mary, my wife Mary, met me in the lobby, and she bought an apple for me. And I hadn't, food had no taste, so I was losing a lot of weight. And uh, she said, just take a bite just for me. So I took a bite and flavor, that was the day it came back. And the sweetness came in. And um, when the sweetness hit my tongue, 
it, I started to cry and it was flushing out all the antibiotics and toxins that I had. And I had not again, I hadn't cried in years and my eyes were burning. And with my burning eyes and the sweetness in my mouth, it just felt good to be alive. Mm. And I just remember thinking, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you that I lived. And that my prayers shifted to thanks. And then I couldn't tell whether after that, Good things were happening because I was saying thank you or they just, I was noticing them. But there's blessings in my curses, even today. I mean, every day. written about crying more easily as a also just an effect that the that that's now part of your life mm -hmm. in a way that it wasn't before the accident is that right yeah it is tears come much easier mm -hmm. um and it is it's the way we flush out our toxins it's mm -hmm. the way we it's a, there's a lot to tears the salt in them that you know it's just they do a lot for us i was wondering as i was reading that have you ever heard that Eastern Orthodox Christianity has a notion of the gift of tears? Hmm. That it's like a, a charism, a grace, a gift. It is. I mean, do you know how good you feel after a cry? It's like an inward sauna. I mean, something mm. happens right, that right. comes out and you just feel really refreshed after a good cry. Yeah. I try yeah. And in, in, in the stories or shows that I do, in a good evening, there will be as much crying as laughing. Because I think both have such healing qualities. But it really gets trained out of us, right? Especially out of men, maybe. I, I think it's a cliche, does. but you don't know. It's, I have but a it's son, true. and I see that he, even from a young age, he he got this idea that crying is something he stops himself from. That's why we have sports movies. I tell you, <laughs> get him in. I tell you, bad news bear still gets the waterworks going in me. Don't worry, you'll get him in front of a sports movie. He'll lose it. Okay. Yeah. All right, thank you for that. Um, something else you said about one of the gifts after the accident is nothing is boring anymore. Right. Is that still true? Oh, well, every, yeah. I don't think it ever was boring. I mean, I was always pretty entertained. We grew up, <laughs> but, you know, we grew up in that time when moms would go in the grocery store and leave you in the car, you know, they might crack a window. And you look over Boredom and there's... Boredom was the only element you had was. to work with. <laughs> but you'd look over in the car next year, there's another kid looking over at you, you know. It's like that's the way we did things. Yeah. And uh, and I remember being on my grandparents' farm and we called it unstructured time. But it was boredom. <laughs> but, you know, that was like we had unstructured time, mm -hmm. which was great because then we got to invent, we got to um, create our worlds. And... Uh, I always credit, well, that is why I've never been bored since. And I do say I've been to plays where I wished I was somewhere else <laughs> and somewhere I would have fallen asleep if I hadn't been the one talking. But I haven't been bored. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. um, I want to talk some more about storytelling and like what you know about the power of stories. Um, one way you talked about, it feels like you made this choice to come back Mm -hmm. To be alive, even if you didn't, and, and that it was a choice, even if you're not sure. You, the question mark for you is, why did you decide, right? But mm -hmm. but that you've written about that as you you've had a chance to rework your ending <laughs> mm -hmm. of your story. Yeah. You know, here's something else you said about 
the power of stories. When I turn something into a story, it doesn't control me anymore. Right. Um, now, I can take you the long way through this or the short well, do, way. Well, do. And I'll tell you why. I think this is so important because storytelling comes up in so many of my different conversations. Well, because, I, and I think know, about it a lot because it's my bread and butter. And right. It's, but it's the element of meaning making. And it always has been for human it beings. It is. But kind of in the latter half of the 20th century, I think, when you and I were being born, um, we, we, were, we got very technical and yeah. systematic and felt like we would be able to discover everything and have the systems to make things work and facts were powerful but, but it's not it was never the whole story it was never the whole story of being human but with every discovery a million more mysteries come up i mean it's it, it the mysteries never stop and the ambiguity gets greater i mean it's we live in the most you know this time where it's harder to follow a light. It's it's more right, right. important to find solace in the mystery. I think that that's what storytelling is about. Mm. But I want to get back to, to at some point, storytelling and healing because mm-hmm. something happened very recently to me that has changed everything. And I want to get back to that, but I got to get to that. Okay. Um, I tell about why I tell stories by telling a story. And it starts with my neighbor, Ben, is at my house. And we're making... Uh, turning a glass door into a screen door. And by doing this, we're putting the glass door over a garbage can, and I've given him a ball-peen hammer, and he's smashing the panes out. And then I'm going to put mesh in it and make it a screen door. And so he's nine years old, and he's smashing out this glass. And all of a sudden, he stops, and he goes, are there jobs like this? <laughs> I go, yeah, I got one. And that's how I think about my job. And meanwhile, his brother's running up and down in front of the house. He's got a towel wrapped around his neck. Um, his arms are out in front of him, and he's going, he's three years old, John Gryling. And he's going, I'm Batman, the animated version. <laughs> and I go, hey, John, get in the house. And he comes in, and he always draws me a picture on our, our dining room table. And this day, he draws a circle. For the first time, he drew a circle. And he runs out the door with this thing, and he comes back the next day. It's all wrinkled. And I could tell he'd slept on it. And he put in <laughs> eyes and a mouth, and he drew his first face. And it was somebody he could tell what to do. And... That was a big day for him. Now he had control over things. Somebody he knew or he didn't know. It didn't matter. But that's exactly how I use stories is that by telling a story, things don't control me anymore. It's in my vernacular. It's the way I see the world. And I think that's why our stories ask our questions, our big questions, like where do we come from before life, after life? What's funny in this world or sacred And even more importantly, by the asking in front of people and with people, even if we don't find the answer, by the asking, we know we're not alone. And I have found that often that's even more important than the answer. Right. And so it's that idea of belonging. And we are social beings. That idea of a comfort in the mystery. And that's where stories... I've got a buddy up uh, in Le Couture, and he... um, he says that, he's a medicine man, he said, you can survive anything with sense of humor and sense of self. Mm-hmm. And our stories give us both of those. Um, Laughter is the same thing. When you're laughing at something, it can't control you. Kevin Kling. Some listeners may recall his charming NPR commentaries in the early 2000s. This is from one he did titled, The How and Why of Life and Death. 
I think when it comes to the underworld, most people are either dogs or they're cats. It's either how or why. For me, the underworld is like a good haircut, that it probably falls between something I had and something I wanted. But we just don't know. We do know whenever you take a trip, there's the trip you plan and then there's the trip you take. Time was only a select few got to visit the underworld, like Odysseus, Orpheus, Dante, Nixon. Now anyone with enough money can go to hell. And when I had my accident, I got a glimpse of things to come. And I've grown used to the fact that I do have a foot now in two worlds. Well, we all have things that haunt us, ghosts, things that we can't find a home for, that go bump in our hearts and minds. We call them names like sins or regrets or desires, and they seem to fall into two categories, kind of like uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken. They're either original or extra spicy. Okay, original ones are the ones we get before birth, little tiny time bombs lurking in our genetic weed bed, just waiting to spring into acts of passion or illness. We can't do anything about those. We don't even know why they're there. They're like that taekwondo school in a shopping mall. Why is that there? It just is. Then there's the haunts that we create by losses or choices made in life, and they tend to trouble us even more. And our great fear is that they will follow us into the afterlife. Ever since my accident, I don't fear death. I get a sense of peace to think I'll see my ancestors, friends that I've lost, my dad, my first dog, and my arm. But until then, it's how, how, why, why, why. After a short break, more with storyteller Kevin Kling, a favorite from our archives. I'm Krista Tippett. Stay with us. On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. Harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism, intellectual humility, and free will at templeton.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today I'm with storyteller and humorist Kevin Kling. Part funny guy, part poet and playwright, part wise man. He was also born with one disabled arm. A midlife motorcycle accident nearly killed him and took away the use of his other healthy arm. As he's been describing, he feels he made the choice after that accident to go on living, to inhabit both disability and wholeness. So, and you said a minute ago that you had a story about stories and healing yeah. or something you've learned just recently. Yeah, and this has become my, this is my struggle these days is that after my motorcycle accident, I had post-traumatic stress and I couldn't sleep. I had anger issues. I just, um, it, it was really, had changed me as a person. And not you know, knowing. can I just say also that you're so delightful and you're so funny, and I think it's really good to hear that part of it, too. Oh, you know what I mean? Because you, you can speak so eloquently about what you learned and the gift of it and the grace of it. and But you, you won all that. It was hard won, right? It was wrested out of It still is, and this is, this is part of this struggle. This is exactly, yeah, it, it, because all of a sudden all those buffers— that went anger, I could go straight to it. And I work in a theater company of performers with disabilities. Mm -hmm. and I want to talk about that later. Oh, yeah. good, because mm -hmm. I've learned so much from them. 
And uh, one of the things is about anger uh, is that it is a tool and it can get things done, but it's to me, it's like pain. It's really, it's not the answer. It's an indicator that something's wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and you can't find the answer through the anger. You can just know something's not right. That's helpful. Well, and I take, and anyway, with this post-traumatic stress, a few months ago, after years and years, it came back with a vengeance. And I went to a therapist and she said, you got to understand this isn't, it, it's not time Relate it. It doesn't work. It sits in such a deep place that it's not triggered in ways you would think. It's not something that time heals. It it will come back. And so what she had me do, which was so fit just with my weird Jungian sensibility, (laughs) she had me uh, tell the story of my motorcycle accident. It was a bit more complicated than this. She told me the story, but instead of hitting the car, I missed the car and I went to where I was going. And by retelling the story and having a different outcome, I started sleeping better. I started all of a sudden, the post-traumatic stress really dissipated in a significant way. And it was because I retold the story in, in another way that, that had me survive in another mm-hmm. way. Um, now, the struggle with me is I still wake up in the morning with my arm not working, with all these things. So there's a reality, and then there's another story I've created. Mm-hmm. And it really seems to fit with the way we work as, as humans, especially these days. We need to rewrite our story sometimes just so we can sleep at night. Mm-hmm. And then, but that's not the reality. But we can't live in the story that makes us sleep, but we need it to sleep. Mm-hmm. And so that's my struggle now, putting those two together, taking the myths we form to make ourselves feel better and fitting it with the reality that we live in. So something you talk about that, that there's a difference between healing and curing. Oh, big difference. And it it seems connected to me because it's related to what you're saying that there are ways in which we need to heal, which are not going to be about everything being all right. No. And anyone that's ever had their heart broken knows exactly that. I mean, the heart is an instrument once broken, never go repairs the same Hmm. yet. Even though it can't be cured, it can be healed and you can love again. But that heart isn't the same heart that Mm. was broken the first time. And anytime you experience loss, whenever I use the word trauma in my my work, the word loss I usually replace as often as I can because a loss is a loss, whether it's a a, a heart, a limb, a promise, a person. Mm. It's all loss and it's all trauma and it's all things that are broken that can't be cured. You can't go back, but you can heal it. And mm-hmm. that's an important thing to know. I think also aging is, is incremental loss. It is. Here's, a, here's one of your lines. Um, if you are able-bodied, it's only a temporary condition. Mm-hmm. Which, is, which is to say that everything you're describing that you learn through disability, disability inborn or acquired is... It's, it's kind of an expanded version of something that, in fact, is very mundane. It is. It, it's what happens to everybody. Mm-hmm. We all experience loss. Um, th- and it's part of being human. It's part of our experience. And, and it's not something you necessarily cherish. I mean, to me, I associate it with being an artist. Nobody's an artist on purpose, you mm-hmm. know. It, it's something that happens to you and... and that then you you create from there. It's like when you're a person and you experience these losses, um, it's what gives us our richness 
it's it's uh yeah it's it gives us hard. our wisdom wisdom's mm-hmm. not cheap you know mm-hmm. it's it's we do we we pay for it right right well so this conundrum of needing the stories that can help us sleep at night but knowing that what are you saying that i mean that it can't in fact be defining that it's that you're going to have to still move beyond that story yeah I, I think again, this is a, again living in a world of ambiguity, living mm-hmm. in these in uh, these world of paradoxes. Uh, part of me now that I see that and recognize that now I'm all excited about it. <laughs> now it's something I get to you get to figure use it. out exactly. Yes. I get to talk about in front of people, mm-hmm. you know, and and slowly I, that one is one I don't think I'll ever bridge. I think now I've got now I've got a, a lifetime of work. That's that I can't wait to explore. Yeah, you know, it, it, and it really is the essence of what of storytelling of of what we do of of theology is that connection of myth with reality, and, and the need for both of them. Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Kevin Kling. In his 2011 play, Joyce Rejoice, he experimented with ideas about the boundary between life and death. It's a playful and poetic retelling of the biblical story of Lazarus, where Jesus responds to the plea of Lazarus' sisters and brings him back to life after he's been dead for four days. Kevin Kling is also passionate about his involvement with Interact, a theater and visual arts group composed largely of people with varying disabilities. So tell me about Interact. Um, I just, I, I feel so fortunate to be part of it. I mean, Oh boy, I could tell so many stories that, but one recently that is really keeps reoccurring. Um, uh, one of my friends, Ingrid, she has aphasia, and aphasia is a condition that makes it's difficult for um, thoughts to become words. Hmm. And Ingrid said one time before her aphasia, she used to feel, "I think, therefore I am," but now she knows we come from a deeper place. Now she feels, I am, therefore I think. And when she told me that, I've, that has come back time and time again. When I remember at that point of that accident, when you think of being down the middle, like with the past, they say, when you dwell on the past, it's regrets. When you dwell on the future, it's anxiety. How do you find that middle road, that sensual middle road? And when you can ride that, the things that fall away, um, when the symbols fall, the myths fall, the words fall, and you get to that point right before the emotion of the experience, hmm. you really are at a point, I am, therefore, I think. You're at, but you can't hold it. But you know it's there. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yes, and somehow that not being able to hold it is also part of that human condition. It is. It's the beauty of it. Mm -hmm. It's like love or truth or beauty. It's those things that can't be held. It's those things that that we keep trying to get back. Mm -hmm. It's that idea of recreating, which, I mean, if we're created in God's image, if we are creations, 
then we too are creators. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I love about the idea of God then is that you know as a creator your creations continue to surprise you. Um, as we kind of draw to a close, um, more theology that I find in you. I mean, you, you compared yourself to Lazarus, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> After you came back from the dead mm -hmm. when you flew off your motorcycle. Yeah, I really... Uh, the story of Lazarus, I, I, that's one I, I, I just touched on. I did a, a play that the character of Lazarus and, and his connection with Jesus. And I loved his sisters. You know, one was supposed to be Mary Magdalene, you know, and the other sister, Martha, who was so mad at Jesus because he left him down there for four days, <laughs> you know, and she's like, bring him back. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and just that, we don't get through the Bible what Lazarus went through and where he was, what that four days. So I wanted to explore that in this play about what happened on each day. When did he run into the rich man that was left behind? What did the rich man give him? What were his first days like of, of getting used to living in this world that was devoid of sensual nature? Mm. I mean, when we talk about living and riding that line, it really is living the senses to the, to, you know, living the five senses. When you are living them, then you are the most awake that you will be. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, in that play... I mean, it was just full of the Bible. I mean, it really, mm -hmm. really was a biblical play. Have you worked with the Bible in that way? Is that new? It is new for me. Um, Post-accident new? Mm -hmm. it, again, yeah. I, you know, it's I, I, I kind of was a, you know, it was. It took me a long time because I grew up, the, the Bible was really difficult because there were so many people telling me what was in it. I forgot that, like, I, I learned kind of through fairy tales. I learned that, when you retell a fairy tale, you can tell it the way you want to tell it. You can tell a story the way what touches you in the story. I mean, the, even Jesus has four different versions, you know. Um, right. And so <laughs> yeah. even, you know, there's, there's markers for that. Mm -hmm. And I never liked fairy tales because... Uh, the guy with the disability always got the short end of the deal, you know, and, and, and the other. So who's that? Who would be the Well, like the seven dwarves, you know, Snow White <laughs> trades in yeah. seven good ones for one, you know, perfectly good <laughs> little ones for one big one. And the ugly duckling. Okay, this one, this one was a particular thorn for me. Because, um, I mean, the ugly duckling, it's all going great, you know, when he's this large uber duck. I love that, you know, this big duck. But then they find out he's a swan. And so... He, he all of a sudden he's not a duck anymore. He's a swan. When you're a kid with a disability, what does that do? Hope you know you hope a shiva aliens lands and goes no. You really want <laughs> us because you know. Right. But you're stuck living with ducks. Right. <laughs> and so when I learned, you could tell them the way you saw them through your own eyes, and that fairy tales were meant to be told and told it. it to get your point of view across. Then I got to change them around and thicken them up. And then with the Bible sticking to it, but there's clues and hints and things inside the Bible that really relate to what I'm going through. Right. In a way also, and not just in the Bible, but in, you know, the heart of religious tradition, there's so much of that. Just thank you for being alive that oh, you discovered man, after David, your, yeah. after your accident. And that's also kind of lost in a lot of the way religion came it's down a, to us in childhood. It's with that create and recreate. It's the Joyce rejoice. It's the, the, you know, it's that 
remembering that joy, that original joy, recreating rejoice, you know, and, um, yeah. And, and yeah, that's, that's the key. Yeah. There's a line, um, that you wrote about identifying with Lazarus, you know, uh, uh, you said, I wish I was so certain I have doubt, I have doubt, but there is freedom in that instead of a path I'm finding solace in the mystery. Mm-hmm. And you've said that also, that mystery is so important. And then I I was really struck by um, this little essay, Racing Towards Solace, and the dog says oh, how. Wow. And I, there was a little, you tell a story, it's right near the end, that back in the days when pots and pans could talk. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not even sure. There's so much. I re, it's not like I read this and I know exactly what it means, but I feel like it somehow is expresses a lot of the essence of of you. I mean it's a very simple thing, but I wondered if you would read that. Sure. And then uh I might should I do that tinkle I we've been talking about I should I do tickle this pink? Tickle pink. So okay. if you wanted to read that uh, I yeah, think it's Yeah, that's amazing. one that's kind of okay. I end a lot of shows with okay. that one. Okay. So th- back in the days when pots just that Back in the days when pots and pans could talk, which indeed they still do, there lived a man and in order to have water, every day he had to walk down the hill and fill two pots and walk them home. One day it was discovered one of the pots had a crack. And as time went on, the crack widened. Finally, the pot turned to the man and said, you know, Every day you take me to the river. And by the time you get home, half of the water's leaked out. Please replace me with a better pot. The man said, You don't understand. As you spill you water the wildflowers by the side of the path. And sure enough, on the side of the path where the cracked pot was carried, beautiful flowers grew while the other side was barren. I think I'll keep you, said the man. I don't know, for me, somehow that felt like just a picture of living with disability, living with loss as a human being. Mm-hmm. I think that, well, the story says it, but I... Mm-hmm. I I think it is looking at, especially living on the fringe and, again, being recognized for what we bring, not for what we aren't. And it's the, it is that world of, of, you know, the dis of disability. Yeah. It's that other foot. I would love it if you want to read Tickle Pink, which is just beautiful. Tell me where this came from. Or is- this, this came from... Um, we did a, I did a show, I grew, work with a group called Bad Jazz, <laughs> and it's three guys that we aren't, I kind of plateaued in the junior high as far as playing tuba, <laughs> but I still love to do it. And so this was a, 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 a song that I wrote, and it's based on, the story is based on uh, when you were feeling your best, my mom would say, you're in the pink, which meant that your insides were pink. Um, and so this poem is called Tickled Pink. At times in our pink innocence, we lie fallow, composting, waiting to grow. And other times we rush headlong like so many of our ancestors. But rush headlong or lie fallow, it doesn't matter. One day, you'll round a corner, your path is shifted. In a blink, something is missing, it's stolen, misplaced, it's gone. Your heart, a memory, a limb, a promise, a person. And innocence is gone. And now your journey has changed. Your path is though channeled through a spectrum is refracted and has left you pointed in a new direction. Some won't approve. Some will want the other you and some will cry that you have left it all. But what has happened has happened and cannot be undone. We pay for our laughter. We pay to weep. Knowledge is not cheap. 
To survive, we must return to our senses, touch, taste, smell, sight, sound. We must let our spirit guide us, our spirit that lives in breath. With each breath, we inhale, we exhale. We inspire, we expire. Every breath has a possibility of a laugh, a cry, a story, a song. Every conversation is an exchange of spirit, the words flowing bitter or sweet over the tongue. Every scar is a monument to a battle survived. Now, when you're born into loss, you grow from it. But when you experience loss later in life, you grow toward it. A slow move to an embrace, an embrace that leaves you holding tight the beauty wrapped in the grotesque, an embrace that becomes a dance, a new dance, a dance of pain. Kevin Kling is a performer and writer with Interact Center for the Visual and Performing Arts. His plays include 21A and Lloyd's Prayer. His books include The Dog Says How. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Lauren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo. Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Scheck, Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Rodrigo Tuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikashen, Lily Benowitz, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, and Matt Martinez. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of The On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.